What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about stories, talking about how to design games that tell stories. And I'm talking to Ignacy Shevichek from Portal Games. And over the years, he has just become a master of storytelling through theme, through mechanism, through the overall experience of a game. And stories is kind of what he focuses on with his publishing company. And so we get into how to do that, how to do it effectively, how to really draw players in with the overall experience, understanding that when people talk about a game, they don't talk about it in terms of components. They don't say cubes and dice and things like that. They talk about it in terms of a story, my army destroy yours, or I cross the finish line first, or whatever it looks like in the world of the game. So if you want your games to tell stories or to just tell better stories, I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Launch Tabletop. Are you thinking of making prototypes, demo copies, or short print runs of your game? Well, Launch Tabletop can help. Their print-on-demand service, Launch Lab, helps you make retail-quality board games at all scales, even just one single copy. Go to launchtabletop.com to find out more, and if you use promo code BGDL20, you'll receive 20% off your first order. So if you want to launch your next game project to the stratosphere with retail quality and no minimums, check out Launch Tabletop today. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome Ignacy Chevichek. Ignacy, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Hello, everybody. So excited to have you here. Been wanting to get you on the show for so long. So glad that it's finally working out. Really excited just to get your understanding of games that tell stories. This is kind of your company's main thing. You want to you know, put games out into the world that tell interesting stories at the table. And so I want to understand better what that means, because I feel like a lot of designers have that same kind of idea. They have the same mindset or would like to, but maybe don't fully understand how to accomplish it. So I'm really pumped just to get your thoughts, your ideas, your design process for games that tell stories stories. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. I'm a geek. Uh, I'm a vivid gamer. I'm the person who fell in love with games in my high school times. I discovered role-playing games. I became super addicted to role-playing games. Then there was a college. I was I was still playing like crazy role-playing games. And then uh, after four years of college, instead, instead of uh, graduating and finishing college in the fifth year, I said to my parents, uh, I have this great idea that I will drop out from the college and found a game company. And <laughs> my parents <laughs> didn't, didn't kill me, uh, luckily for me. And, uh, they agreed uh, that I will take one year break from, uh, from college and try to start my own company. And then after the year, we'll decide if I go back to college or the company will survive and grow. And here I am 20 years later. I never get back to the college. I never graduated from the college. I made my career from gaming. So I'm basically living my dream. I'm a gamer who became a professional gamer. Now, that's awesome. So I assume that was Portal Games that was started in that moment, right? 
Correct. Wow. And so help me understand what got you into game design. So I talked to a lot of people and they start in RPGs. They start with, you know, playing Catan and stuff like that. And then something flips the switch and they start thinking, hey, I think I could make some of these too. How did that happen for you? What made you really want to get into the design of games? Yes, it was very slow and very very natural process. So when, if you think about role-playing games and they're all about the uh, playing scenarios and adventures, if you're a game master or dungeon master, if you are talking about Dungeons & Dragons, you are creating stories to run the sessions. And of course, you have to write them down. So I was writing uh, game sessions and scenarios for my friends. And then at one point I said, well, I can write them. Maybe I can write for somebody else. So I wrote a couple of more adventures. I sent them to the Polish magazine about role-playing games. They read it and they said, this is very good, this is interesting, and they published it. So after being a published author and being paid author, which was awesome for me back then when I was in college and somebody was paying me for writing adventures for role-playing games, it was like a dream a side job. I started writing more and more and more. And basically when I founded Portal Games, at the very beginning, our goal and our aim was to release a magazine about role-playing games in which in this magazine I was writing more adventures and more articles about role-playing games. And then naturally... When I was working in this company, I discovered card games, I discovered miniature games, I discovered board games, and one after another, I started designing them. So it was very slow, very organic process from just writing adventures from my gaming group to writing adventures to be published, then to found my own company and publish my own role-playing games, and then discovering board games and doing first some small, very simple in, uh, board games that were like we could now call them like Munchkin style games, so very stupid party game uh, style games. And then I started doing something more sophisticated, more complex. And today, here I am, being designer of quite complex uh, games. So it it took me twenty years to slowly, slowly develop the whole career. Yeah, that's awesome. I can't wait to get into the design process for a lot of these different games and how you tell stories through them. But real quick, one question I have for you. So there's a lot of people who listen to this show who want to do something similar to what you've done. They want to start their own company. They want to go full-time working in the industry. What would be your advice to somebody that's thinking about that? What are some things that they should be thinking about? Like, what would you tell somebody sitting in that situation? You were sitting in, you know, 20 years ago thinking, gosh, I want to do something else. I want to travel down this game, you know, publishing route. What would you tell them? Yeah, this is a very dangerous question because I can talk about this about two hours and you will have no other <laughs> questions. <laughs> yes, on one hand, it is so difficult today because we all say that, and this is unfortunately true, the market is so crowded. There is so many companies, there are so many games released. So today, to start a company, to start publishing games is so much difficult. But on the other hand, when I was starting 20 years ago, it is so difficult for you guys to understand and to remember these times and many of you were kids back then but back then when i was starting company there was no facebook there was no snapchat there was no instagram there was no social media there was no board game geek there was no internet whatsoever my first year of the company we had no internet in the office so to check email i had to visit my friend who had you know this modem and i was checking emails in my company once a week so we are talking about very very a long time ago so then back then promote the game and promote a company and make a business was so much harder than today when you can just open a super simple website, you can promote your product on Board Game Key, you can go to the Kickstarter and get crowned 
founded project. So on one hand, it is so much more difficult today because the market is really crowded and you have to stand out. On the other hand, you have all these tools that you can run company from your home, just using internet, which is a blessing for everybody. As for my advice for the people who want to go into the industry, when I run seminars for the young designers, I, I always start with this very simple uh, sentence. Decide if you want to be game designer or if you want to be part of the industry. Because so many people who love the industry and want to be part of this amazing uh, family think that if they want to be part of the industry, they have to be designer. This is so not true. We as industry, we are looking for people who know marketing. We are looking for people who are very good with logistics, so we can ship all these games in time to our warehouses. We are looking for accountants because, yes, we do invoicing and we do stuff with the money. We are looking for the coders to do our websites. We are looking for all these different jobs. And being a game designer is just one of a dozen of careers that you can make to be part of the industry. So I always say at these seminars for the designers, Ask yourself a question. Are you a designer? Do you want to be a designer? Or do you want to be part of the industry? Because there are two different things. I am, as you will see later in this interview, I guess, I, I became a designer quite accidentally, just designing different games. But my most important part of the job is being market marketing person. I run marketing department at Prota Games offices. I prepare all these campaigns for, for, for building the hype and buzz for my games. And I could be easily hired by Simon or Asmodi in the marketing department. And I would not need to design games and still I would enjoy my time in the industry. So uh, I would say be aware of your skills, be aware of your talent and uh, be aware of what you want to achieve in, in life. Yeah, and you bring up some really, really good points. You know, I hear people say it all the time. That, some of you just said the market's so crowded. And so I don't even I feel like I don't even have a chance. I might as well not even worry about it. But no matter when you're talking about, it's always been difficult for one reason or another. In 10 years from now, it's going to be difficult for maybe a totally different reason than it is now. And so it kind of brings me back to an old proverb I, I heard and said, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time yes. is now. And so like, go ahead and start if you think, you know, you want to get into it somehow. And like you're saying, it doesn't even have to be publishing and starting your own company or corporation or LLC or something like that. There are so many different jobs in the industry that can kind of be a, a, a stepping stone into maybe something down the road. Maybe if you want to be a full-time designer down the road, we'll start in marketing, start off in logistics, start off in the warehouse of a fulfillment center, just shipping out games and being part of the industry uh, in some way. I think that's really, really good advice. Uh, I think also maybe working at a booth for a, a publisher. Now, would you also suggest people kind of get in that way and start volunteering and working with, with companies like Portal Games and others? Here is a real-life uh, example. This last BGG con in Dallas, we had a volunteer who was uh, at our booth presenting our games, uh, helping us promote the brand, and basically being this awesome volunteer. This month, he's going to be hired by Portal Games as a full-time employee. So yes, these things happen. Like You have to make a first step. You have to... Uh, let us being aware about you, about your talent, about uh, what you can bring, what is your value that you can add to the company. And once again, I know that this is po this podcast, the, the whole the whole podcast is about game design. But if you're talking about uh, your careers, you can be amazing salesperson, you can be amazing logistic person, you can be an awesome, awesome video editor. We need all of you. We don't need only game designers. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, well, let's get into the topic at hand. Let's talk about games that tell stories. Now, this is your, your main thing with your companies. We want to make games that tell stories. But give me a good working definition. What do you mean by games that tell stories? It's uh, very simple for me. I'm not I'm, because I'm not native speaker, so I'm not sure if I will be able to elaborate enough clear. But uh, let let me try it. Mm, if you finish the game, after you finish the game, uh, I want you to be able to say something more than just "I won" having eighty five points. So now, real life example: If you played Robinson Crusoe, after finishing the game, whatever you lose or won, you will say, "Oh my God, we were just." fighting with the tigers we just built this amazing shelter but then there was a rain and the whole shelter was destroyed and we were looking for the uh, for the wood to build this uh, uh, this uh, new um, stuff and weapons uh, but we were not succeeding and oh my god so many things happened and then we lost uh, so board games that tell stories in my opinion is that the game that you are playing and after the game you have to say something more that happened during the game than just you had this amazing combo that brought you 25 points. Yeah, for sure. You know, if you listen to people talking about games, they very rarely say, hey, do you remember that time I moved those five red cubes onto that space and then I rolled <laughs> dice and I beat yeah. you eight to seven? Like, no, that's not how we talk. We talk yeah. in stories, right? I moved my five armies, you know, into your territory and then I just decimated them, you know, or something like that. And so that's a really cool way to do it. And so how do you start a design? Like when you have it in your head, an idea, you know, something you want to turn into a game, you want it to tell a good story. Tell me about your beginning process for kind of really starting to bring that game to life. Yeah, the the, the, the most epic examples, of course, are uh, Robinson Crusoe and First Martians and Detective. These are the the most story-driven games I design. And uh, for each of these, and Stronghold. And for each of these three or four games, the process was quite similar. So so we can really base uh, base this thesis on these four titles. And it starts with uh, research. Like I literally read a ton of novels. I'm a bookworm, so I love reading. So it was not a not hard for me. And uh, as we are recording, I'm sitting in my, my uh, room here at my home and in front of me there are these, all these books uh, that I had when I was uh, doing research uh, for uh, Robinson Crusoe. And in front of me, let me just grab here. Here we have uh, Destination Mars by Rob Pyle, New Explorations of the Red Planet. So, so I read books for the first Martians I had to, uh, to read about the chemistry and physics in English because not all the books were in Polish so it was quite a task for me for Robinson Crusoe I read so many books about on one hand uh, surviving uh, on the island on one hand adventure books I read so many comic books I, of course I watched a ton of movies so I do a ton of research and I basically uh, get the Got to be confident with the theme, uh, reading, watching, doing like Pinterest tables, and 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 have some inspiration from the artwork. And it takes me like three, four, maybe five months, very very slowly preparing, preparing to to start design. And then when I'm f finally feeling very confident with the theme, I'm starting making notes. And uh, these notes, for example, for Robinson Crusoe would be like, what's important, what's crucial for the game to be thematic and called a very, very strong thematic about surviving. So 
we want them to explore the island. We want them to find something on this island, on these different caves and and places. We want them to build the tools because this is a very important part of all these movies and all these books that they are trying to create some technology out of nothing. We want to have a very harsh weather because in all these movies, all these books, there's always some rain and storms and uh, cold night. So I'm making notes what has to be part of this game. Like it must be in a game. And then I'm taking each of these uh, crucial parts and I'm trying to design small, small rules how to tell this story. So for Robinson Crusoe, it started with, uh, of course, designing a map. We want to explore the island. I had an island and then we started moving from this pie. So how you move on the island, how you build the shoulder, how you build the tools, etc., etc. So it's a very slow process. I'm... Uh, I, I have this comfort that uh, I'm not in a rush. I can take as much time as I need uh, to design games. Like this is my, you know, not my main job. My main job is being CEO of the company. And once a while I design a game. Uh, so for Robinson Crusoe, it was uh, altogether one year. Uh, but small, small steps. Uh, and it all started with just picking a theme, reading books, reading uh, comic books, watching movies, and then building the whole game. Very cool. All right. So you start off right right at the beginning with a whole bunch of theme and experiences in mind and then try to figure out mechanisms and like game rules to kind of support those things. Do you always do that or do you ever start with mechanisms first? I, I have I have this very popular uh, game called 51st State that was designed exactly opposite. Uh, it is uh, quite exception from my uh, natural road. So with this game, I was just driving my car and I guide this out of the blue idea for the mechanism, I came home, I noted it down, and a few weeks later the game was ready. So, But it was like a super accident, it was, I cannot explain that. It just happened, I was lucky, and I came with the game. It was ready very, very soon. But basically, basically it's a long process of me just discovering, like digging the theme, digging the theme and digging the game. Mm, this is how I create these uh, strong, rich games. Gotcha. Now, for a game like Fifty First State, you know how how then do you bring the story out when you do start with a mechanism first? Because I know a lot of people who listen to this, they start mechanism first, and so how like, what would be your advice for how they can insert story, insert theme into it? Yeah, with this, uh, I with Fifty First State and then the Imperial Setters, the follow up game uh, for that, it's uh, it's a ton of artwork, it's a ton of. Uh, some small, small rules that somehow feel thematic, but uh, being being honest, 51st State, although designed by me, I would not call it board game that tells stories. Of course, you can add something to that if you raise opponent cars and if you demolish his empire, you will say it was very thematic. But no, in my opinion, 51st State is like much more Stefan Feld or Rainer Knizia game in my in my CV and Robinson Crusoe Detective or uh, Stronghold is more Ignacy Trzewiczek uh, version of, of design. So if we start with the mechanism, it is much harder, in my opinion, for me uh, to design a, a, a game that tells a story. Gotcha. And I think that's something for designers to to just keep in mind. Now, one thing that it sounds like whenever you get, get going on an idea, on a game, a theme, you spend a ton of time reading books and watching movies and researching all these things. And that, that's a lot of effort, a lot of energy. 
And so what do you do when you get to a point where you realize the game is just not going to work? I've had so many people send me emails and say, how do you how do you know when to walk away from a game, how to put it, you know, when to put it on the shelf? Tell me about your process of knowing, OK, let me switch gears. Let me try to do something else. This is just not happening. Yeah, I'm lucky enough that I have uh, I think I have no single uh, prototype uh, that uh, that I failed to finish. Or maybe some small projects, but basically, if I started working on a stronghold, I was working as long as needed to finish it, and the game was ready. Robinson Crusoe the same. Like, if I start uh, working on a game, I work as long, uh, as much, as intense as, as as needed to finish the project. Of course, I have this uh, luxury of having the development team uh, at my company. So, if I struggle, there might be somebody who will help me with some solutions. But um, my my position is a little bit different from freelancers, from freelance designers. That um, if I design a game that will be published by Portal Games, uh, the company needs this game. Like I cannot say, well, guys, after six months of of designing, uh, I have no clue how to finish it, so we'll not have a release next year. Uh, it will not happen. Uh, so I, I treat it very very seriously. And I work as as long as I find a solution if there is something not working in the game. For the freelancer and designers who just create games at home and then pitch them to the design to the publishing houses to the companies, for them it's maybe a little bit easier to just abandon some of the projects that they are struggling with and just move on and find a new project and have a new inspiration and move on with something new. For me, it's it's hard to abandon project in progress. Gotcha. So does that also make you more selective on the front end? Like, do you have a lot of ideas and then you're really, really selective about which ones you're going to pursue, knowing that you you can't spend six months on something that's going to be a waste? Uh, I don't want to disappoint your listeners, but maybe we can say, maybe I should say it much earlier now, it's a 20 minute in the interview, but uh, let's let's say it right now. Basically, I hate designing games, uh, and this is not a joke. This is not some funny posture. Uh, I really find it uh, super difficult. Uh, it's a long, very hard process. It's very important for my company. I happen to have uh, some successes in this field, so I continue to design games. But basically, I don't like the process because, as you mentioned, it's uh, long. Uh, it's frustrating, in my opinion. So when I decided I will do a game mm, before I even start, I have to be super, super confident that this is something I want to spend uh, these many, many months the work, and that this is something that will be hopefully successful. So there is a potential for being a, a bestseller. Like uh, I, I don't uh, do design just for fun. Like I don't do design. Oh, I have this uh, idea for the nice mechanism. Let's find out what I can do with that. This is quite different. Like I say, hey, we see that uh, detective games become popular. We see that Sherlock Holmes is an amazing design. Let's try to design a new game that uses this niche because it may become very popular and I have some good ideas how to do it and how to execute this idea. And then one year later, we have detective, the board game already on the market. But it was not just me being, okay, let's find out. No, it was very important business decision. The market, the company, need a game like that and let's let's struggle let's work let's let's build it gotcha and that makes a lot of sense actually it reminds me of the old saying about writers that writers don't like to write they like to have written 
And so I think yeah. it's the same thing. It's, you sit down to write a book and it's just this long process and you, and you feel like you're bleeding all over the keyboard as you're trying to get this story out or whatever it is. And so it sounds like you had the same thing. Now let me explain because maybe people will not understand and maybe will misunderstand my message. The thing is, and if you if you look it at this very, very, uh, in general perspective, uh, if you design a game, that means that you have a prototype of the game and this prototype is not working and your job as designer is to make an amazing game out of it. So you are fixing, you are changing, you are playtesting, you are asking for feedback from the playtesters, you are changing again. But basically we all understand designing a game is having a prototype that is, does not work and trying to, as fast as possible, that may take a few months, make this prototype working and being fun and awesome and becoming a great game. This is obvious, right? So what does it mean? That means that for these few months, you have something that doesn't work, that frustrates you, that pisses you off, and you will be working every single day, every single weekend, struggling, trying to fix it, and you still play testing, and once again, it's not working, and then you fix one solution, so something is working, but something else is not working, and now playtesters are complaining. This is uh, many months of frustration, and when you finally finally make it happen and this prototype is fun and awesome and everybody loves it the producer the publisher takes it from you the game goes to publishing and you start over with once again fresh new prototype that sucks and you have to spend all these new months of being frustrated trying to fix it and having these hopes it is awesome but it is not awesome people are complaining it's boring it's not working like basically designing a game is ongoing process of being frustrated this is my perspective uh well i'm complaining i'm from poland i'm slavic all people in poland are complaining so here i am <laughs> no i think you're just giving the the real side of things i feel like a lot of times especially people who are getting into this at first you know they're just starting out as designer as a designer they're getting into it as a hobby they kind of have the you know the the rainbows and butterflies idea of what game design is and it's not that a lot of times a lot of times it's a lot of a grind and and figuring things out and being super frustrated over and over again i remember reading an interview or hearing an interview you did when you were developing cry havoc and you just kept running into it's not it's not better than Kimmet. It's not better than Kimmet. And over and over yep. and over again, just trying to make it better and how much of a, a process that was. And so what would be your advice when you are being really, really selective uh, about which products to pursue? How do you how do you figure that out? Are you looking at the market and kind of where the market's at right now and, and looking at different like what, what's your process for like, I guess you have like little check boxes that you're going through to, to say, OK, this is the product we're going to chase after. So. Yeah, this is. Uh, I wrote an article like two weeks ago about this, and the article was uh, was was called "I Lost My Compass." And in this article, uh, I said that for the couple of years, uh, I was quite precise with uh, what I was designing, what I had on my developer's desk, and what actually market was looking for. I was very lucky, and I developed the game called Tides of Time, amazing micro game exactly in the moment when all these micro games and the love letter became popular i had my test of time and everybody was buying this game and enjoying because it was it last year the huge hype for the roll and ride games uh, spread all over the industry and yes there was a game designed by me and it was roll and ride imperial setters and back then there was this whole whole explosion of detective games uh, uh, two years ago with uh, Chronicles of Crime, with Detective Los Angeles, and with my detective. So once again, somehow I felt the trend in the industry. Somehow I knew what people are playing, and uh, I came up with the game that was matching the demand on the market. And it is very important for me as, as being a CEO of the big company. Uh, 
the thing is that what I do is, uh, as I said, I'm a gamer, I'm a vivid gamer. I'm on Instagram every single day. I'm on Twitter every single day. I'm on Facebook Facebook groups every single day. I listen to podcasts about board games, and I am basically one of you. So I, I feel these trends. I feel what you are playing. I know that at this very moment, so many people are playing on Mars from Vita Lacerta because the game was sent to the backers and everybody's now talking about this game i played it as well today so i'm one of you and therefore i try to understand what we gamers are looking in upcoming months uh, what's hot right now and i'm trying to come up with the uh, game and uh, that will we will make us or make us all happy gotcha so you really just find a way to keep your your hand on the pulse of the gaming industry. And then you just kind of go with, with what people are excited about, what they're, yep. what they're into. That's, that's a really good, good idea. Uh, what good way to do it. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of people who say, I hate social media. I hate Facebook. I hate Instagram. I hate Twitter. It's like, well, that's, that's fine. Um, but you're going to put yourself at a bit of a disadvantage one in the marketing of things. If you're not posting and for people to, you know, see pictures of your game and things like that. But also like you're saying, you're not going to have your hand on the pulse to know really what's in, what's out, what people are excited about, what they're not. And so that's, that's yep. some really, really good advice. I want to talk a little bit more about Detective. Uh, it's such an interesting game. It's such a game. It's a game that's so different from most other games out there. And so tell me about the design process for it. Maybe some challenges you ran into. Just kind of tell me how it all came to happen. Yeah, the, the whole game uh, came out from my absolute love and uh, huge respect to the old game called Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Uh, released uh, many, many years in the uh, 80s and then re-released by History Games and then re-released by Asmodi. Uh, I absolutely adore this game. I respect the designers. I think it is something exceptional. Uh, and I have uh, all these Sherlock Holmes uh, games at home. And then uh, there is this uh, amazing HBO show called True Detective. And one evening it just clicked, like, uh, I love this Sherlock Holmes, I love True Detective, the the movie, and I thought, like, Sherlock Holmes is an amazing experience, but if we can move all this setting into the modern times, if you can shake things uh, a little bit on the website, add some new mechanism, you can come with something absolutely new, interesting, different from Sherlock Holmes, but yet giving this superb feeling of, of being a, a detective. And then... Uh, more than uh, almost two years about two years uh, later the game was ready it's hard to understand and uh, and uh, believe that there's such a simple game there's almost no rules whatsoever and that such a simple game takes so much time to uh, to design but it was a long process and uh, there was three designers involved and there was a writer who came up the whole plot line the whole story he basically wrote the book. Uh, there was me doing the whole game, basically, like uh, gamification, all these cards, all this flat, like everything that is in the box. And then there was this third designer who was the editor of the whole game because it is a investigation game. So there's so many facts, uh, dates of the birth, uh, size of the shoes, uh, color of the hair, like there's so many facts. And if you want to have a great game, you have to add so many details and all these details have to match. Like you cannot make mistakes because people are playing this game are looking for these details. So we have three of us and two years adventure and the game was ready. I'm very proud of it. I think that we managed to 
being inspired by Sherlock Holmes Constant Detective, uh, still design a brand new beast, brand new game that maybe will inspire other designers and they will come with something else out of it. So I'm very proud that on one hand we, we gave uh, respect for the for the previous game and the other hand we created something brand new and exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like a game that not only do players walk away from the game with stories, but the game itself is telling a story. And so tell me about the process of really figuring out a compelling story. Like you say, you had a, another designer that was basically writing a book, you know, to, for all the different content and things that were in there. Tell me about maybe some of the challenges with that as far, because you want it to be riveting, you want it to be interesting, uh, but it's going to be more than just how the game plays out. It's actually telling you stories and things like that. So tell me more about that. Yeah, this is so exactly as you said, there is a uh, lot of things involved. Let me start with a uh, uh, absolutely honest price uh, for the uh, writer of the plot, uh, detective. Um, there is many cases right now because the game was released two years ago, so there is many cases. But we are, if you are talking about the base game of detective, the one that is on the market for the past two years, it is a campaign. It is a five scenarios long campaign, and it is so tense, uh, so uh, complex, so interesting. There is so many tw different twists and the layers of the plot. It is absolutely brilliant. I hired this person, Przemysław Brimmer, uh, because I know him for the more than 20 years. This is the guy who was my game master when I was in college, when I was, uh, before I founded the company, we played together Call of Cthulhu. He was the best game master I had in my whole life. And out of all these uh, games I played in my life, he was the best. And he wrote the best adventures for Call of Cthulhu. And now, 20 years later, I, I called him and I said, Przemek, I need you. I'm designing a detective game. I'm designing the game about investigation, and I need you to write me a story for this game. And then a few months later, he gave me a, 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 a book, basically. So for everybody who wonders how it looks like, this is about 80 pages, tense, dense, dense font, all the what happened, who killed, why he killed, how it's connected to different persons. Like the whole script is more or less probably like a script for the movie or TV show. So all the facts, um, motivations of the people, etc., etc. And uh, when I had the script, it was terrifying. <laughs> it was so big. There were so many details. And then you have to chop it into the uh, single cases. So every case is a one game night. So you have to chop it. We chop it into into five uh, five cases. And then if you know if you have this case, now you know what what plot it is. What who is a murderer? What are the uh, some proofs what is the way he killed etc etc and then you start designing the whole case so we are plotting you know the cards you are putting some clues on the cards different clues on different cards and you are building the whole story detective the one thing that uh, makes me mad is the fact that the game of course is spoiler dependent so i cannot talk too much about the, the game because i will ruin the whole experience because players need to discover by themselves what happened and what's interesting in these particular cases so i'm not able to talk too much about these cases and uh, they are very different so if you are talking about what were the challenges the challenges were that mm, on one hand if you want to explain detective in a few sentences it is a very simple game in which you draw a card you read the flavor text on the card in this flavor text, there are hidden clues, and each of the cards give you uh, links or numbers to draw different cards. And you are making a choices because there is so many options for you, so many different cards that you can draw. And you draw these cards, you read the flavor text, you get conclusions, you get 
chance to find the clues and then you pick another card. And this is basically the card game. Uh, the, each case basically comes with the 30 cards. You are able to read about 15 of them uh, based on the rules of the game. And so this is the game of the choices, which cards you want to, to read. And then if you read these cards, you have to find uh, clues hidden in the text. But the challenge here is that these basics are shaken in every single case because we want to surprise players. So all these, uh, as I said, the general structure of the of the game, of the cases, in each case is completely different. And this is something I cannot share. This, this drives, drives me mad because I put so much effort and so much work and so much heart and talent to make them every single case different. If you go to the forums, game forums, you can you can find information that everybody says, hey, case free in detective is amazing. I cannot say anything, but it shakes things like a play case free. So people are trying, you know, without being too spoilery, talk about them. But the, basically each case is very, very, very different in terms of the structure. So this is the big challenge, how to use this very simple mechanism, draw a card, read the card, find the hidden clues, and that's it. How to use this basic mechanism and shake things and surprise players so they are excited to play another case because they will find something absolutely new in terms of this small, small mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. And so then not only do you have a game that tells a story in of itself, but then you have to figure out how to translate it into English and other languages. And so tell me about the, that process of, of taking this rich, huge story and translating it. And is, is that something you've also run into with other games and like really trying to, trying to tell a story, but then the translation sometimes gets in the way or anything like that? We've, we've detective uh, over these two years, we built a whole team of, of people. So with each expansion, with each uh, new case that we are publishing, the process is better. Uh, we have a b bigger team. So for example, last year we released case called Natural Causes, which is a free-to-play, so everybody can go to our website, download the case, and uh, there are print-and-play materials, so if everybody, everybody is, anybody is listening and are interested in the detective, this is your free-to-play demo, Natural Causes. And this case, Natural Causes, which is given for everybody on this very planet for free, is so much better than some of the cases in the base game because we learned so much more about the system, because I became better writer and better designer over these two years, because I have a bigger team. And speaking about the team, right now we have in the team not only writers who write the thing in Polish, not only we have uh, better translators, because over these two years and over, we, we at this point we released, I think, 15 different cases. So we had different translators. Right now we are working with the absolutely amazing uh, translator. Nah, but now we have a team in America, native speakers, who polish the, the cases, who find the, the problems, who find the issues. And we are talking not about the, only the grammar issue, that what was done in the, in the previous cases, but right now and they are editing also on, in terms of the cultural level, in terms of the differences, uh, how we perceive things in Poland and how you perceive things in America or different countries. So there's so many things that when we send a case to the native speakers and then they have these comments and we discuss how to change some parts of the, of the case because something works different than I thought or maybe than I knew in, in America. We, we are just releasing this upcoming week another case and there was a couple of moments when we had to change the plot of the case uh, after the native speakers uh, read the case and said, hey, Ignacy, it is impossible. In America, it doesn't work like that. 
uh, clearly this is a system from uh, from Polish. It was a thing about the hospital, and things are working a little bit different when you are wounded and go to the hospital in Poland and different in America because the action takes place in America. I had to adjust and I had to listen to my native speakers and we had to j- change the whole part of the plot. So now the the team is a huge the the adventure. Finishes even after I design after I finish designing because after I finish designing it goes to the translation and then there's another weeks of discussion with native ed- editors and polishing quite the task and detective at this very moment is my main project I'm working designing new cases and giving new interesting game nights to our fans so yeah big project uh, uh, lots of work. Yeah, but like you were saying earlier, this is also another opportunity for a way into the industry. If you understand multiple languages and you understand how to edit and things like that, this might be another way to, to have a job in game the gaming industry. Uh, so let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk about Pret a Porter, one of your other games. This is games all about fashion, fashion design, and things like that. So tell me about the design process for it and how like what kind of stories you were trying to tell through that game. Yeah, with this with this game is a very interesting uh, origin story because the game uh, was basically designed uh, for the purpose. Um, there was a special project in the National Bank of Poland, uh, quite the organization, uh, who had an additional fund, I would call, uh, and they were having money to support different initiatives uh, that will promote among the young people in Poland the right and the good way of spending money or managing money. Basically, they wanted to educate young people how to manage finances. And we knew about this this project and we sent our offer that our idea is to create a board game that will teach people how to manage finances. Then the National Bank of Poland accepted our offer. They gave us uh, funds. They gave us money to design such a game. And then suddenly I became a designer of the economy game, which is my only so far economy game, heavy economy game in, in my in my catalog. And so that was uh, inspiration came from the uh, from outside uh, source, I would say, from the National Bank of Poland. And then after we got accepted, we had to create an economy game. So I used my whole experience about running company, that is Portal Games. I used the team of fashion because we had this uh, interesting prototype about fashion and the designer of this of this prototype agreed to use it. And I decided I'm going to design a game about running a company in a fashion industry. So if you look at the at the at the game, it is very, very thematic in the way that it basically tells the story of running a company. You are hiring people, you are renting a buildings, you are signing a contracts, you are preparing for the trade shows like in the game industry, going to Gencore or going to Essen. You have to build them, you have to buy materials, you have to produce the product. Like all the things that I do, that my company is doing on a regular basis, I have just put all these in actions. Uh, in a game, so basically, my research was ten years of experience in the field, uh, not fashion, but uh, but uh, running a business. And uh, here we are with the game that is called one of the most thematic Euro games out there. And of course, it is thematic uh, because it tells the story of running a business. The theme of the fashion, of course, is a nice touch, 
is additional flavor and it is beautiful if you look at the board, if you look at the components. But this game tells a story about running a company. Gotcha. And you know, like you're saying, the new edition especially looks phenomenal. Now, I know for a while you were thinking about retheming it to the video game industry and, and kind of going a different direction. Now, tell me a little bit more about that and why ultimately you decided not to do that, why you decided for the new edition just to keep it in the fashion industry. So when we released the first edition of Preta Porte, it was the year 2010, it was a complete disaster. And the sales were terrible. We printed 1,000 copies. So we, we were barely sell, selling it for like two or three years. It was uh, basically disaster. And um, and over the years, I got so many geek mails because people uh, contact me uh, on Board Game Geek uh, from the customers who bought the game, who loved the game, and were complaining that each time they go to the gaming club or if they go to the game store that have a game night and they put this game on the table, everybody is making love of them that they brought the fashion game and nobody wanted to play with them this game. And uh, gamers prefer a fantasy team, gamers prefer a science fiction team, gamers even prefer Agricola team and uh, ships and... uh, and cows, but fashion, everybody was laughing. So when we started about thinking about the new edition of the game, we decided that this theme of fashion is not good for the gamers. Like most of the gamers back then were male, were guys, and they wanted axes and guns, not the clothes and, and skirts. So we decided that we would change the theme. We were discussing with Rado, a famous reviewer who had his background in the video game industry and he's a huge fan of Preta Porta. He, he, he put this game in his top 10 of all time and he said that the video game industry would make a perfect sense for this game and he can help us uh, retheme the game, so change the cars, change the, uh, the, the theme of the game. And we started working. We actually had a, a meeting in Essen. There was a brainstorming. It was a great time. And we were changing all these cards into the team of video games to reach the audience that is the gamers. Mm. Uh, but here we are, a year 2019, and I'm very happy and very proud to see that the market is changing. There is so many uh, girls joining the, the home. There's so many women playing the games right now. The industry is so much more open. If you visit conventions these days, like Essen, like GenCon, like Origins, you see so much more families uh, playing the games, not only the geeks. Like, I love geeks, I am a geek as well. I also play Dungeons and Dragons, but hey, geeks, we need some fresh air. We need women, we need the families, we need other people in the industry. And now I see it's happening. There's so many new, uh, new blood in the industry. So we decided let's try to reach this new audience. Let's try to respect this uh, new blood in the industry and let's try to go with this crazy crazy theme that is a fashion and see what happens and we decided to go to the kickstarter and uh, basically flip the coin like we will see if the feedback will be like this few years ago everybody will making fun of us that we are doing a fashion game or maybe the industry changed and as everybody knows uh, probably the kickstarter was stunning success we had more than 5000 backers which for a euro game is like a record super popular lots of price for the game and we proved our point the industry changed the industry is open for the for women in gaming i'm very happy that we were one of the companies that proved that 
So yes, uh, overall, I'm very happy that this one game, Protoporta First Edition and Protoporta Third Edition, is a nice, interesting uh, symptom, signal, proof that industry is growing and is open for uh, new people in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this goes back to what we we're talking about before. You know, a lot of people say, you know, the industry is too crowded, it's too noisy. Yeah, but there's so many new, amazing people coming in uh, from yep. all different walks of life, all different countries, all brand new markets are being opened up. You know, I had an interview recently uh, with a guy from the Middle East and he's, you know, making games for the Middle Eastern market. And he was talking about how much potential there is out there with so many, you know, there's billions of people around the world who have not yep. really accessed games yet. Men, women, and, you know, and so many different amazing cultures. And so it's going to be interesting times over the next five, 10 years to see all these new markets opened up, all these amazing new people coming in. Now let's talk about a game that did get a retheme or at least, you know, was changed a good bit. And that's 51st state kind of being turned into Imperial settlers. So tell me a little bit about that process and, and what you were like, why you, why you did that and what you were trying to accomplish. So that's a, that's a great question. I'm happy that, uh, because I forgot about this game. I, I'm so happy that you're bringing it up. So uh, first, a uh, small, 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 funny story, how I came out with this idea for Imperial settlers, but then we'll go to the, more serious, uh, serious uh, topic because it's a part of my seminar for young designers. So it is very good that you yeah. uh, touch the base with that. So how it came up? Uh, it's very simple. Uh, I designed Fifty First State, the card game. Mm, uh, my wife fell in love with this game. Uh, she played with me this game uh, hundreds of time, and believe it or not, uh, we were in the position that. I hated this game. I couldn't play it anymore. And my wife was just play with me again, play with me again. I love 51st State. I want to play. I was in defense. Like, I was, no, I don't want to play this game. No, please. I want to play 51st State again. It was disaster. It was quite funny now, but back then it was not funny. And uh, at some point, uh, there was so much pressure in the house uh, that uh, my wife uh, told me, please change the team of 51st state into more friendly and I will play with my kids because you don't want to play with me. So the first prototype of uh, Imperial Setters, now we know the game as Imperial Setters, was basically cast for 51st state that I ha had a drone uh, done so she can play with my kid. So instead of bad mutants, there were some uh, merchants. Instead of some, you know, killing people, there were some uh, dealing. But basically, I did a prototype at home so my wife can play with my kids because I was not able to play anymore of 51st State. So this is uh, funny, this is crazy, but it's a true story. Uh, after I did this uh, handmade the prototype of this fantasy light family oriented version of 51st state uh, she played with my kids she said it's really working it's very fun kids wanted to play so i took this prototype to the office i showed my my team and, and said hey guys probably accidentally we have something very interesting this is mechanism of 51st state change into a family oriented fantasy theme and it works it's fun and we should consider doing it as a real project and of course, a year later, it, it became a thing and it became Imperial Setters. So this is a crazy, hard to believe story how Imperial Setters uh, was made. But on a serious note, on a, on a, like advice uh, part of the uh, of the podcast, uh, there is this old saying um, which I believe so much in. 
that says ideas are shit, execution is everything. So basically what he's saying is say, telling is that we all have these great ideas, we all have this one million idea, we all have these great ideas for the games and card games, but the key point is not to have the idea because everybody has ideas, the key point is to execute, to actually do this game, to actually execute it. And this old saying is very popular. Everybody heard it, everybody knows it, but I believe not everybody understands how true this saying is. And uh, 51st State and EPR Citrus is a great example. So let me explain now. I designed 51st State. The game was released. Uh, it got two expansions, so it was quite popular. I got a few nominations for the hour. So this is a quite successful game for for me and for my company, we were nominated for International Gamer Awards, we were nominated for the Golden Geek, so it was a good, successful uh, release. And then I got this Imperial Setters game that became a worldwide phenomenon, was released in 12 different countries, won a dozen of awards, had at this point six or seven expansions, was sold in thousands, thousands of copies worldwide and brought me so much more than 51st state. The thing is that these games in general have exactly the same rules, like 51st state and Impiacetas have basically the same idea. So what I'm saying is that ideas are shit. Impiacetas had no new single idea. It was basically a copy of the 51st state. The difference is the execution, because the execution is the key. In Impiacetas you have the better executed theme because it's more family friendly. In Impiacetas you have a better components because we use the custom wooden components. In Impiacetas you have much more better artwork because we paid more for the artwork. In, in Impiacetas you have a much better rulebook because we knew how to write better rulebooks back then, etc. And I could go on and on and on. This example is perfect for all these young designers to understand that we all have ideas and back then I had the idea for 51st state and became quite successful and then this exactly same idea I used in the Impia Setters, I executed better with the better artwork, better rulebook, better components, better distribution and I made a worldwide phenomenon, worldwide hit that sold 10 times more than 51st state. The same game, better execution. So this is this serious part of the of the podcast. Uh, understand that everybody has ideas and the best designers are these designers who can execute them and make smooth, nice, perfect prototype. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I think it also brings up the fact you should never be afraid to make a big change, you know, totally change the theme if, it, if it's going to be something that uh, fits better into the market. And again, if you're wanting to do this as a company, those are some things you really have to think about. It, it can't just be, I want this game because I want it. It's like, well, what do the customers want? What does the people in general want? Do you have any, any, do you have any other examples of games that you've either changed the theme, you know, even behind the scenes, like maybe for several months you worked on one thing and you're like, no, let's do something totally different. Let's drastically change this. And it, you know, became something. You, yes. You mentioned, you mentioned earlier the cry havoc, the, the cry havoc, the prototype we received was about the uh, wars in Europe and Napoleon and this kind of stuff. So it was basically a historical game. And we said to the designer of the game, Grand Rodic, we said that we love the solutions in the game. The, the battle board is something unique, exceptional, and we love to publish this game. But we are not GMT. We don't want to make a niche game about the wars in Europe. We want so many more players to discover this amazing battle board. So we want to change the theme. And we said, this is a perfect game for the StarCraft audience. 
let's make it sci-fi, let's make it fight on the planet, let's make aliens, let's make humans, like marines, let's make it full-blown StarCraft experience, and then people will discover this game. And we were right, the game was released in 2016, became absolutely phenomenal, we sold back then 15,000 copies in, in, in a few months, and we were right, and I'm absolutely positive and sure that if we release this game as this historical setting, we would sell like 1,000 or 2,000 copies because uh, people think that the war games, historical war games, are complex, or difficult, not for them, and they would not be interested. With the sci-fi game and the aliens and marines, everyone was interested, the game became successful, and so many people discovered this amazing, amazing piece of mechanism that is a battle board that Grand Rodic designed. So I think that he had a, a guts to trust us, uh, and he agreed for us to change the theme and we knew the market we knew uh, what we want to achieve with this game and the game became a success so yes uh, you need to think about the market you are designing the game for the market you want that in the end it all is a business you want to earn money you want to sell this game you want this game to be popular so you have to think about the good artwork good theme good rulebook like all these pieces together very cool. That's that's really interesting to uh, to realize that that game was gonna be you know old school you know battles and and, and ships and and that kind of thing and to and see what it became. If, yeah. Yes, if you can, if I can even add more, the Grand Rodic, the design of the game, he already paid for the artwork, so we received the prototype with the artwork, which was insane for him basically to. If I can advise, don't pay for the artwork if you have prototype and not publisher yet. But he was a young designer; he didn't know, know that. So basically, he upfront paid for the artwork. So we received the prototype with the amazing illustrations, and we said we love prototype, we love the battle board, but the whole artwork we don't get it. We are changing it. So that's gotcha. Well, it worked out pretty well. Let's uh, yeah. let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about playtesting. Tell me about your playtesting process and, and kind of what you're looking for to make sure that the game is telling a story and kind of how the reactions of playtesters and things like that. Tell me about your, or, or the Portal Games playtesting process. I'm, I'm looking at the, at the watch and I see that we have not enough time for me to, <laughs> to talk about the playtesting. I have the whole seminar, one hour seminar about playtesting. So maybe in a few months we will do another, another recording of the podcast and we will just talk about the playtesting because it is a fascinating uh, topic and we can come back to this uh, in a few months. But right now, just like a, like a small bit, like the essence of the, of the seminar, playtesting is, in my opinion, a work is a job and the, if you want to get the one thing from this interview is to understand that playing the game and playtesting the game are completely two different things and uh, i see when i talk with the designers the young designers who come to me and give me some prototypes at conventions for example and they say hey i play tested this prototype 100 times it's it is well play tested and then I start talking with them, and uh, it basically turns out it was played 100 times, not play-tested 100 times. Where is the difference? What I mean by saying that playing and play-testing is different things. When you want to play-test a game, you have this prototype, you have play-testers, and you have to have on a perfectly, if you can do it on a piece of paper, wrote down, written down, what is at the goal of this particular playtest. Like today, we are playtesting the economy of these goods. 
Today we are playtesting if the track of the round works well. Today we are playtesting if the balance is shaken, if I have less units, etc, etc, etc. You cannot just sit with your friends, play the game, uh, drink beer, have fun, discuss, and then forget uh, what happened. You, you go to playtest like you go to work. You have the goal of this particular playtest, you have to understand what you are playtesting, and after the playtest is done, after this game session is done, you have to have conclusion. You have to have the answer for the question that you put on this paper before you started. If the question was, if the balance is shaken, if I have less units, after this one hour playtest, you have to have the strict answer, yes or no. This is very important for me. This is how I playtest, like there is no uh, playtest just for play, just for fun, just see what happens. No, no, no. There is, I have no time for just see what happens. Like I, when I'm playtesting, I have a goal. So it is very important for the young designers to understand that I don't care if you playtested it 100 times. Uh, I'm fine if you playtested it 15 times or 10 times. But if these playtested were well done, they had a goal, they have an aim, you had your answers, you fixed the prototype after this playtest and you moved on. And uh, and this is a small bit, as I said, I have the one whole one hour seminar that I run at, at the conventions about playtesting because this is so much important. This is the most important part of the game design process because the game design means you are playtesting and after the playtest you are fixing. Then you are playtesting, then you are fixing. So basically designing a game is basically playtesting and having the right conclusions getting the right conclusions from each playtest. And this is how you develop games, this is how you design games. So basically designing means playtesting, but playtesting doesn't mean playing the game. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree. You know, playtesting, you need to be uh, approaching it like a researcher, like a scientist and going in with an intentional idea about something you're trying to prove or a hypothesis you're trying to figure out, like, does this happen or does that happen? But you need to be intentional. Totally agree. And I think I speak for all the listeners when I say that uh, you would be more than welcome to come back for another show here sometime soon. And we can just discuss playtesting uh, in depth. I know a lot of people would get a lot out of that. Ignacy, this has been phenomenal, man. Do you, have any, uh, do you have any closing thoughts for somebody who's trying to figure out how to make sure their games are telling stories, how to kind of bring themes to life so that stories just kind of, kind of come to the forefront and, and players walk away excited about the experience that they had? What would you tell somebody who's trying to make sure that they're doing that in their game designs? I would, I would give you the, the final tip that I'm, I'm using myself and it works nice for me, so maybe it can work for you. After I play a game, I make a note. Uh, if I play a different game, like not mind games, like I'm playing On Mars, I'm playing uh, Tapestry, I'm playing uh, Arkham Horror, I'm making a note uh, what I liked in this game, one small sentence, and what I dislike in this in, in this game, one small sentence. So I have the whole book right now, the whole notepad, with all these conclusions from the games. And uh, then when I design a new game, I'm just browsing and I see what sucks in the games, in my opinion, what I didn't like in different games I played, and what I loved in the games I played, and then I try to learn and be better. So on one hand, as I said at the very beginning, I'm a vivid gamer and playing board games like crazy. I love this hobby. But then once in a while I become professional, and after I finish a game, I'm just remember to make a note to myself what was awesome about this game, what was not awesome about this game, and therefore I build my whole encyclopedia, my whole one personal uh, booklet of uh, good advices uh, about the uh, design. Awesome. 
Well, man, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with with all the games uh, that you're working on and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you, sir.